You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. Your host is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. Survival rates are woefully disappointing for patients who arrest outside the hospital. Could enhancing the standard method of CPR improve their outcomes? Our guest today is Dr. Peter Nagale. He's Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Welcome, Dr. Nagale. Hello. We're going to talk about survival rates for patients who suffer an out-of-the-hospital cardiac arrest. How do those rates compare first to in-hospital arrests? They're lower. In general, I think it's actually better to talk about sudden cardiac death. So that means, yes. you know, you have a major heart attack, your heart stops beating, and then clock starts running. So it's just a better surveillance in the hospital. You know, patients are on floors, patients are in units. So it is recognized earlier, which is probably the most important thing anyway. And also there is a difference how sort of cardiac arrests develop in the hospital compared to out of the hospital. For instance, in the hospital, there is actually a large fraction of patients who have respiratory arrest. Let's say, an example, they have a too large dose of a very strong pain medication. They, they can stop breathing. That usually is fairly uncommon out of the hospital. Out of the hospital, the primary cause for cardiac arrest in an adult is sudden cardiac death due to a myocardial infarction. And so those two main reasons can explain the survival difference. Some patients are being monitored. Obviously, the arrest, because of a number of people being around, are detected earlier, and treatment can be initiated much earlier. It has to have an impact on the survival rate. Correct. And one thing we should not forget is that this is a very time-sensitive issue. If treatment is not, especially out-of-hospital sudden cardiac death, if treatment is not initiated, let's say, within five minutes, the chances of a good survival are low. And good survival means in good neurological function. That is always a concern, right? Because sometimes it's actually easier to get the heart back beating, but then the patient suffers from permanent brain damage. And that means, you know, in terms of outcomes, there's no, no win, no gain if a patient then, you know, moves from home into a nursing facility and really never regains consciousness. In the earlier days of door to balloon, one of the sayings that was so common was time is muscle, but it's also brain tissue, as you point out. Yes. Let's talk about standard CPR. I know this is a hotbed for research. We've been constantly over the years trying to refine the techniques for standard CPR. Talk to us about some of the issues that surround uh, administering CPR outside a hospital setting. In general, we have to differentiate between what's called basic life support and advanced life support. Basic life support is really basically for lay people and even for healthcare professionals if they don't have any equipment with them, any drugs or any, let's say, airway equipment. And advanced life support is usually in the pre-hospital setting, the domain of EMS, of paramedics. So for basic life support, for the last decades, the standard was to provide rescue breathing and to give chest compressions. And, you know, back, I would say, about 10 years ago, the ratio was 15 chest compressions and two rescue breaths. And CPR is actually a field where there's strong research. There's really strong research. And researchers just found out that, especially in the first minutes, 
Rescue breathing is really not that important. So in 2005, the major change in the guidelines that appear, I would say, about every five years was going from 15 to 2 ratio to 30 to 2 to emphasize chest, more the chest compression part and de-emphasize the ventilation, the rescue breathing part. Which is a real advance, certainly an impediment to bystander CPR is doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on a complete stranger. That is correct, and there is actually strong evidence that shows that even us in the healthcare professional field do not like giving mouth-to-mouth ventilation. That is a fact. If people are sort of secretly asked, doctors, nurses, if they would consider giving mouth-to-mouth ventilation on a stranger, the answer is more often no than yes. So we are faced with the conundrum that we have guidelines that may be optimal if a bystander is really willing and able to perform those chest compressions and rescue breathe. The reality shows that it, this is not the case. That if you imagine what is the sort of the peak age when someone has sudden cardiac death, it is not the 40-year-old, it is more commonly the 60, 70, or even 80-year-old. And that means they, they're most often found at home. It is not sort of the patient who collapses in the middle of a busy street. That is sort of the com- most common instance of sudden cardiac death, but it's at home. And who's going to find this, this person? Usually the spouse or kids. And those family members usually do not have any formal CPR training. Or if they had formal CPR training, it may be decades ago. And they don't train, and no one can blame them, but they don't train. So the quality of bystander CPR, and this was a, I have to say, it was a fairly elaborate and complicated algorithm, the, the basic life support algorithm, that you first look, listen, and feel, check the pulse, give two rescue breaths, and after giving two rescue breaths, you start chest compressions, and then switch from doing 30 chest compressions to two rescue breaths, limiting the time in between. That sounded really good on paper, but in reality, especially the elderly, they were just not able to do that. And so now this is sort of the, in a way, the difference between an ideal setting and an ideal world and then the real life. And in real life, it just does not work. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD. It's the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our guest today is Dr. Peter Nagale. He's Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. We're talking about CPR and ways to improve the outcomes in patients who suffer a cardiac arrest. Dr. Nagley, I'd love for you to share with us the results of a recent study, the RESCUE trial, published in Lancet. Tell us what was used and what were some of the findings. Let me start with sort of the development last year. In a way, the development last year, the new CPR guidelines came out. And they, for the first time, now recommend doing chest compression-only CPR for lay bystanders. That was a huge, huge shift in emphasis. There has been an experience, actually very strong results and evidence from Arizona that show that Arizona basically, I think on the leadership of Dr. Gordon Ewey, they taught and instructed lay bystanders in chest compression-only CPR. And they found with their rigorous approach that they could really improve survival rates. In some places, they saw survival rates up to like 30%, which is is extraordinary. (laughs) You have to take this with a grain of salt because it was an observation study. It was not, you know, a formal randomized clinical trial, but the results are intriguing and very interesting. 
So that was sort of the, in a way, the culture change, the a really a main shift in how sort of the CPR community is looking at how to improve survival after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And in the rescue trial, the rescue trial was done by a fantastic collaboration, which is called the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium. And this was founded, I would say, between 10 and 15 years ago in the United States. It is sort of a collaboration of many hospitals and EMS services and universities to rigorously study important scientific questions in CPR, in, in resuscitation, not just for cardiac arrest, but also trauma. In one of the studies, what was called the rescue trial. In the rescue trial, they looked at basically two new devices. These are used in the setting for paramedics. So they were in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and they showed that with what's called active compression, decompression device, and a device that basically blocks the passive entry of air into the lung that usually can only be used if a patient is intubated. With those two devices, they saw an improvement in neurological function 30 days you know, afterwards, which was also a very important finding. There was, I think, in the CPR community, some sort of a cautionous approach because, interestingly, individually, the devices have not shown to be beneficial. So I think the jury is still out if this will lead to a huge improvement. And But currently, I think the approach that was done in Arizona to really teach the lay public how to do chest compression-only CPR, and maybe this can be something like a first step where someone called this, you know, last year, the bronze level of CPR <laughs> training. You know, you get the right. silver and gold. And maybe this is really what we need. And I'm absolutely supportive of the sort of the push by the American Heart Association to require for high school graduation to be proficient in basic life support. I think this is a fantastic idea that should be taught in every, in every high school in the United States or basically worldwide. So by doing that, teaching chest compression-only CPR, you're giving at least something into the hand of bystanders that they will not forget. And they're not grossed out by doing, by doing chest compressions compared to doing the fairly complex algorithm. And so one of the reasons also why survival rates are so low is because only in half of all cardiac, sudden cardiac arrests out of the hospital, bystanders will intervene and start. And that is clear. If no one starts CPR, basically the patient is dead. Unless, you know, the EMS responds within like two or three minutes, the survival chances are just so limited if no one takes action and starts CPR. And that may be something where, you know, if late bystanders start CPR right away, that may really improve survival and maybe the biggest boost for survival rates in the last 30 years. Well, I hear your strong advocacy for a scientific approach to this and lauding the fact that uh, it is indeed a hotbed for research. We've got great minds gathered around this. One of them you mentioned, Dr. Yui. But I also hear you applauding the demystification of CPR for millions and millions of people who, once equipped and confident, can actually succeed in a way that all of the EMS folks and uh, STEMI systems that we are also trying to create would not be able to. You can't possibly be on the scene for all of these arrests. That is correct. We're dealing with basically two separate issues. The one issue is creating the best scientific guidelines there are, right? This is a very formal scientific approach. What is sort of the best science? What is the best, let's say, compression to ventilation ratio in an ideal setting? That drives the research. That drives sort of the scientific community. 
The second question is how to implement this on a population level. And the best CPR results, survival results, are commonly around Seattle and have been for the last, I would say, 20 years. Right. And the reason for this is because the response time from 911 call to arrival on the scene are the shortest or among the shortest in the nation. And in addition to this, they have been driving the science, you know, the implementation of a scientific approach to advanced life support in their EMS system. So it was, it was a multi-pronged approach, but really have very short response times, EMS response time, really impact survival. In some places, EMS sees survival rates up to 40%. So this is sort of the real life. How can we implement a quick and fast and professional response? But the truth is, you know, in many rural areas, EMS response times may be on the order of 10 minutes or even longer. And that is just too long for any meaningful outcome. It is just too long. And that's why I think, you know, training lay bystanders on a population level, like the American Heart Association suggests and recommends, you know, for teaching all the high school students, I think it's a fantastic approach, yes. And, you know, you referred earlier to family members of patients. If we think about patients that have known heart disease, the recommendation that perhaps family members get trained in basic bystander CPR? I think that is a very smart approach. In the end, you want to have something like a saturated population where you have a high chance of finding a BLS, basic life support proficient bystander, you know, either in the family or in, you know, close vicinity that can help. The problem is that cardiac arrest is such a stochastic event. It's random. It's random. And we cannot saturate, especially in this current economic environment, we cannot saturate the country with EMS stations so that we have super short EMS response times. That cannot be the approach. It would be too costly and too inefficient. It has to be through the lay public, that you instruct them with something really simple. And chest compression-only CPR is really simple. Take out all the angst and the fear of doing something wrong in a cardiac arrest situation so that they really are willing to intervene, even if they haven't had a formal training in, you know, in decades or even never. We've been talking with Dr. Peter Nagale about how to improve outcomes for patients suffering cardiac arrest through saturation of training in CPR. Dr. Nagale, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.